American Notes, Chapter Eight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. American Notes by Charles Dickens, Chapter Eight. Washington, the Legislature, and the President's House. We left Philadelphia by steamboat at six o'clock one very cold morning, and turned our faces towards Washington. In the course of this day's journey, as on subsequent occasions, we encountered some Englishmen, small farmers perhaps, or country publicans at home, who were settled in America and were travelling on their own affairs. Of all grades and kinds of men that jostle one in the public conveyances of the States, these are often the most intolerable and the most insufferable companions. United to every disagreeable characteristic that the worst kind of American travellers possess, these countrymen of ours display an amount of insolent conceit and cool assumption of superiority quite monstrous to behold. In the coarse familiarity of their approach, and the effrontery of their inquisitiveness, which they are in great haste to assert, as if they panted to revenge themselves upon the decent old restraints of home, they surpass any native specimens that come within my range of observation, and I often grew so patriotic when I saw and heard them, that I would cheerfully have submitted to a reasonable fine if I could have given any other country in the whole world the honour of claiming them for its children. As Washington may be called the headquarters of tobacco-tinctured saliva, the time is come when I must confess, without any disguise, that the prevalence of those two odious practices of chewing and expectorating began about this time to be anything but agreeable, and soon became most offensive and sickening. In all the public places of America this filthy custom is recognized. In the courts of law the judge has his spittoon, the crier his, the witness his, and the prisoner his, while the jurymen and spectators are provided for, as so many men who in the course of nature must desire to spit incessantly. In the hospitals the students of medicine are requested, by notices upon the wall, to eject their tobacco juice into the boxes provided for that purpose, and not to discolour the stairs. In public buildings, visitors are implored through the same agency to squirt the essence of their quids, or plugs, as I have heard them called by gentlemen learned in this kind of sweetmeat, into the national spittoons, and not about the bases of the marble columns. But in some parts this custom is inseparably mixed up with every meal and morning call, and with all the transactions of social life. The stranger who follows in the track I took myself will find it in its full bloom and glory, luxuriant in all its alarming recklessness at Washington. And let him not persuade himself, as I once did to my shame, that previous Taurus have exaggerated its extent. The thing itself is an exaggeration of nastiness which cannot be outdone. On board this steamboat there were two young gentlemen, with shirt-collars reversed as usual, and armed with very big walking-sticks, who planted two seats in the middle of the deck at a distance of some four paces apart, took out their tobacco-boxes, and sat down opposite each other to chew. In less than a quarter of an hour's time these hopeful youths had shed about them on the clean boards a copious shower of yellow rain, clearing by that means a kind of magic circle within whose limits no intruders dared to come, and which they never failed to refresh and refresh before a spot was dry. 
This being before breakfast rather disposed me, I confess, to nausea. But looking attentively at one of the expectorators, I plainly saw that he was young in chewing, and felt inwardly uneasy himself. A glow of delight came over me at this discovery, and as I marked his face turn paler and paler, and saw the ball of tobacco in his left cheek quiver with his suppressed agony, while yet he spat and chewed and spat again in emulation of his older friend, I could have fallen on his neck and implored him to go on for hours. We all sat down to a comfortable breakfast in the cabin below, where there was no more hurry or confusion than at such a meal in England, and where there was certainly greater politeness exhibited than at most of our stage-coach banquets. At about nine o'clock we arrived at the railroad station, and went on by the cars. At noon we turned out again to cross a wide river in another steamboat, landed at a continuation of the railroad on the opposite shore, and went on by other cars, in which, in the course of the next hour or so, we crossed by wooden bridges, each a mile in length, two creeks called respectively Great and Little Gunpowder. The water in both was blackened with flights of canvas-backed ducks, which are most delicious eating and abound hereabouts at that season of the year. These bridges are of wood, have no parapet, and are only just wide enough for the passage of the trains, which, in the event of the smallest accident, would inevitably be plunged into the river. They are startling contrivances, and are most agreeable when passed. We stopped to dine at Baltimore, and being now in Maryland, were waited on for the first time by slaves. The sensation of exacting any service from human creatures who are bought and sold, and being for the time a party, as it were, to their condition, is not an enviable one. The institution exists, perhaps in its least repulsive and most mitigated form, in such a town as this, but it is slavery, and though I was, with respect to it, an innocent man, its presence filled me with a sense of shame and self-reproach. After dinner, we went down to the railroad again and took our seats in the cars for Washington. Being rather early, those men and boys who happened to have nothing particular to do, and were curious in foreigners, came, according to custom, round the carriage in which I sat, let down all the windows, thrust in their heads and shoulders, hooked themselves on conveniently by their elbows, and fell to comparing notes on the subject of my personal appearance with as much indifference as if I were a stuffed figure. I never gained so much uncompromising information with reference to my own nose and eyes and various impressions wrought by my mouth and chin on different minds, and how my head looks when it is viewed from behind as on these occasions. Some gentlemen were only satisfied by exercising their sense of touch, and the boys, who are surprisingly precocious in America, were seldom satisfied even by that, but would return to the charge over and over again. Many a budding president has walked into my room with his cap on his head and his hands in his pockets, and stared at me for two whole hours, occasionally refreshing himself with a tweak of his nose, or a draught from the water-jug, or by walking to the windows and inviting other boys in the street below to come up and do likewise, crying, "'Here he is! Come on! Bring all your brothers!' with other hospitable entreaties of that nature. We reached Washington at about half-past six that evening and had upon the way a beautiful view of the capitol, which is a fine building of the Corinthian order, placed upon a noble and commanding eminence. Arrived at the hotel, I saw no more of the place that night, being very tired and glad to get to bed. 
Breakfast over next morning, I walked about the streets for an hour or two, and coming home, throw up the window in the front and back and look out. Here is Washington, fresh in my mind and under my eye. Take the worst parts of the city road in Pentonville, or the straggling outskirts of Paris, where the houses are smallest, preserving all their oddities, but especially the small shops and dwellings occupied in Pentonville, but not in Washington, by furniture brokers, keepers of poor eating-houses, and fanciers of birds. Burn the hole down, build it up again in wood and plaster, widen it a little, throw in part of St. John's wood, put green blinds outside all the private houses, with a red curtain and a white one in every window, plough up all the roads, plant a great deal of coarse turf in every place where it ought not to be, erect three handsome buildings in stone and marble anywhere, but the more entirely out of everybody's way the better, call one the post-office, one the patent-office, and one the treasury, make it scorching hot in the morning and freezing cold in the afternoon, with an occasional tornado of wind and dust, leave a brick-field without the bricks in all centre-places where a street may naturally be expected, and that's Washington. The hotel in which we live is a long row of small houses fronting on the street and opening at the back upon a common yard in which hangs a great triangle. Whenever a servant is wanted, somebody beats on this triangle from one stroke up to seven, according to the number of the house in which his presence is required, and as all the servants are always being wanted, and none of them ever come, this enlivening engine is in full performance the whole day through. Clothes are drying in the same yard, female slaves, with cotton handkerchiefs twisted round their heads, are running to and fro on the same business. Black waiters cross and recross with dishes in their hands. Two great dogs are playing upon a mound of loose bricks in the centre of the little square. A pig is turning up his stomach to the sun and grunting. That's comfortable. And neither the men, nor the women, nor the dogs, nor the pig, nor any created creature, takes the smallest notice of the triangle, which is tingling madly all the time. I walk to the front window and look across the road upon a long, straggling row of houses, one story high, terminating nearly opposite, but a little to the left, in a melancholy piece of waste ground with frowsy grass, which looks like a small piece of country that has taken to drinking and has quite lost itself. Standing anyhow and all wrong upon this open space, like something meteoric that has fallen down from the moon, is an odd, lopsided, one-eyed kind of wooden building that looks like a church with a flagstaff as long as itself sticking out of a steeple something larger than a tea-chest. Upon the window is a small stand of couches, whose slave-drivers are sunning themselves on the steps of our door and talking idly together. The three most obtrusive houses near at hand are the three meanest. On one, a shop, which never has anything in the window, and never has the door open, is painted in large characters, The City Lunch. At another, which looks like a back way to somewhere else, but is an independent building in itself, oysters are procurable in every style. At the third, which is a very, very little tailor shop, pants are fixed to order, or in other words, pantaloons are made to measure. And that is our street in Washington. It is sometimes called the City of Magnificent Distances, 
but it might with greater propriety be termed the city of magnificent intentions, for it is only on taking a bird's-eye view of it from the top of the capital that one can at all comprehend the vast designs of its projector, an aspiring Frenchman. Spacious avenues that begin in nothing and lead nowhere, streets mile-long that only want houses, roads, and inhabitants, public buildings that need but a public to be complete, and ornaments of great thoroughfares, which only lack great thoroughfares to ornament, are its leading features. One might fancy the season over and most of the houses gone out of town for ever with their masters. To the admirers of cities it is a barmecide feast, a pleasant field for the imagination to rove in, a monument raised to a deceased project, and not even a legible inscription to record its departed greatness. Such as it is, it is likely to remain. It was originally chosen for the seat of government as a means of averting the conflicting jealousies and interests of the different states, and very probably, too, as being remote from mobs, a consideration not to be slighted even in America. It has no trade or commerce of its own, having little or no population beyond the President and his establishment, the members of the legislature who reside there during the session, the government clerks and offices employed in the various departments, the keepers of the hotels and boarding-houses, and the tradesmen who supply their tables. It is very unhealthy. Few people would live in Washington, I take it, who were not obliged to reside there, and the tides of emigration and speculation those rapid and regardless currents are little likely to flow at any time toward such dull and sluggish water. The principal features of the capital are, of course, the two houses of assembly. But there is, besides, in the centre of the building, a fine rotunda, ninety-six feet in diameter, and ninety-six high, whose circular wall is divided into compartments ornamented by historical pictures. Four of these have for their subjects prominent events in the revolutionary struggle. They were painted by Colonel Trumbull, himself a member of Washington's staff at the time of their occurrence, from which circumstance they derive a peculiar interest of their own. In the same hall Mr. Greenow's large statue of Washington has been lately placed. It has great merits, of course, but it struck me as being rather strained and violent for its subject. I could wish, however, to have seen it in a better light than it can ever be viewed in where it stands. There is a very pleasant and commodious library in the capital, and from a balcony in front the bird's-eye view of which I have just spoken may be had, together with a beautiful prospect of the adjacent country. In one of the ornamented portions of the building there is a figure of justice, whereunto the guide-book says, The artist at first contemplated giving more of nudity, but he was warned that the public sentiment in this country would not admit of it, and in his caution he has gone, perhaps, into the opposite extreme. Poor Justice! She has been made to wear much stranger garments in America than those she pines in in the capital. Let us hope that she has changed her dressmaker since they were fashioned, and that the public sentiment of the country did not cut out the clothes she hides her lovely figure in just now. The House of Representatives is a beautiful and spacious hall of semicircular shape supported by handsome pillars. One part of the gallery is appropriated to the ladies, and there they sit in front rows and come in and go out as at a play or concert. The chair is canopied and raised considerably above the floor of the house, and every member has an easy chair and a writing desk to himself, 
which is denounced by some people out of doors as a most unfortunate and injudicious arrangement, tending to long sittings and prosaic speeches. It is an elegant chamber to look at, but a singularly bad one for all purposes of hearing. The Senate, which is smaller, is free from this objection, and is exceedingly well adapted for the uses for which it is designed. The sittings, I need hardly add, take place in the day, and the parliamentary forms are modelled on those of the old country. I was sometimes asked, in my progress through other places, whether I had not been very much impressed by the heads of the lawmakers at Washington, meaning not their chiefs and leaders, but literally their individual and personal heads, whereon their hair grew, and whereby the phrenological character of each legislator was expressed, and I almost as often struck my questioner dumb with indignant consternation by answering, no, that I didn't remember being at all overcome. As I must at whatever hazard repeat the avowal here, I will follow it up by relating my impressions on this subject in as few words as possible. In the first place, it may be from some imperfect development of my organ of veneration, I do not remember having ever fainted away or having even been moved to tears of joyful pride at sight of any legislative body. I have borne the House of Commons like a man and have yielded to no weakness but slumber in the House of Lords. I have seen elections for borough and country, and have never been impelled, no matter which party won, to damage my hat by throwing it up into the air in triumph, or to crack my voice by shouting forth any reference to our glorious Constitution, to the noble purity of our independent voters, or the unimpeachable integrity of our independent members. Having withstood such strong attacks upon my fortitude, it is possible that I may be of a cold and insensible temperament amounting to iciness in such matters, and therefore my impressions of the live pillars of the Capitol at Washington must be received with such grains of allowance as this free confession may seem to demand. Did I see in this public body an assemblage of men bound together in the sacred names of liberty and freedom, and so asserting the chaste dignity of those twin goddesses in all their discussions as to exalt at once the eternal principles to which their names are given, and their own character and the character of their countrymen, in the admiring eyes of the whole world. It was but a week since an aged, grey-haired man, a lasting honour to the land that gave him birth, who has done good service to his country as his forefathers did, and who will be remembered scores upon scores of years after the worms bred in its corruption, are but so many grains of dust. It was but a week since this old man had stood for days upon his trial before this very body, charged with having dared to assert the infamy of that traffic, which has for its accursed merchandise men and women and their unborn children, yes, and publicly exhibited in the same city, all the while, gilded, framed, and glazed, hung up for general admiration, shown to strangers not with shame but pride, its face not turned towards the wall, itself not taken down and burned, is the unanimous declaration of the thirteen United States of America, which solemnly declares that all men are created equal, and are endowed by their Creator with the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was not a month since this same body had sat calmly by and heard a man, one of themselves, with oaths which beggars in their drink reject, threaten to cut another's throat from ear to ear. There he sat among them, not crushed by the general feeling of the assembly, but as good a man as any. 
There was but a week to come, and another of that body, for doing his duty to those who sent him there, for claiming in a republic the liberty and freedom of expressing their sentiments, and making known their prayer, would be tried, found guilty, and have strong censure passed upon him by the rest. His was a grave offence indeed, for years before he had risen up and said, A gang of male and female slaves for sale, warranted to breed like cattle, linked to each other by iron fetters, are passing now along the open street beneath the windows of your temple of equality. Look! But there are many kinds of hunters engaged in the pursuit of happiness, and they go variously armed. It is the inalienable right of some among them to take the field after their happiness equipped with cat and cart-whip, stocks and iron collar, and to shout their view hollow, always in praise of liberty, to the music of clanking chains and bloody stripes. Where sat the many legislators of coarse threats, of words and blows such as coal-heavers deal upon each other when they forget their breeding? On every side, every session had its anecdotes of that kind, and the actors were all there did i recognize in this assembly a body of men who applying themselves in a new world to correct some of the falsehoods and vices of the old purified the avenues to public life paved the dirty ways to place and power debated and made laws for the common good but had no party but their country i saw in them the wheels that move the meanest perversion of virtuous political machinery that the worst tools ever wrought despicable trickery at elections underhanded tamperings with public officers cowardly attacks upon opponents with scurrilous newspapers for shields and hired pens for daggers shameful trucklings to mercenary knaves whose claim to be considered is that every day and week they sow new crops of ruin with their venal types which are for the dragon's teeth of yore in everything but sharpness aidings and abettings of every bad inclination in the popular mind and artful suppressions of all its good influences such things as these and in a word dishonest faction in its most depraved and most unblushing form stared out from every corner of the crowded hall did i see among them the intelligence and refinement the true honest patriotic heart of america here and there were drops of its blood and life but they scarcely coloured the stream of desperate adventurers which set that way for profit and for pay it is the game of these men and of their profligate organs to make the strife of politics so fierce and brutal and so destructive of all self-respected worthy men that sensitive and delicate-minded persons shall be kept aloof and they and such as they be left to battle out their selfish views unchecked and thus the lowest of all scrambling fights goes on and they who in other countries would from their intelligence and station most aspire to make the laws do here recoil the farthest from that degradation that there are among the representatives of the people in both houses and among all parties some men of high character and great abilities i need not say the foremost among those politicians who are known in europe have already been described and i see no reason to depart from the rule i have laid down for my guidance of abstaining from all mentions of individuals it will be sufficient to add that to the most favourable accounts that have been written of them i more than fully and most heartily subscribe and that personal intercourse and free communication have bred within me not the result predicted in the very doubtful proverb but increased admiration and respect 
They are striking men to look at, hard to deceive, prompt to act, lions in energy, crichtons in varied accomplishments, Indians in fire of eye and gesture, Americans in strong and generous impulse, and they as well represent the honour and wisdom of their country at home, as the distinguished gentleman who is now its minister at the British court sustains its highest character abroad. I visited both houses nearly every day during my stay in Washington. On my initiatory visit to the House of Representatives, they divided against a decision of the chair, but the chair won. The second time I went, the member who was speaking, being interrupted by a laugh, mimicked it as one child would in quarrelling with another, and added that he would make honourable gentlemen opposite sing out a little more on the other side of their mouths presently. But interruptions are rare, the speaker being usually heard in silence. There are more quarrels than with us and more threatenings than gentlemen are accustomed to exchange in any civilized society of which we have record. But farmyard imitations have not as yet been imported from the Parliament of the United Kingdom. The feature in oratory, which appears to be the most practised and most relished, is the constant repetition of the same idea or shadow of an idea in fresh words, and the inquiry out of doors is not, what did he say, but how long did he speak? These, however, are but enlargements of a principle which prevails elsewhere. The Senate is a dignified and decorous body, and its proceedings are conducted with much gravity and order. Both houses are handsomely carpeted, but the state to which these carpets are reduced by the universal disregard of the spittoon with which every honourable member is accommodated, and the extraordinary improvements on the pattern which are squirted and dabbled upon it in every direction, do not admit of being described. I will merely observe that I strongly recommend all strangers not to look at the floor, and if they happen to drop anything, though it be their purse, not to pick it up with an ungloved hand on any account. It is somewhat remarkable, too, at first, to say the least, to see so many honourable members with swelled faces, and it is scarcely less remarkable to discover that this appearance is caused by the quantity of tobacco they contrive to stow within the hollow of the cheek. It is strange enough, too, to see an honourable gentleman leaning back in his tilted chair with his legs on the desk before him, shaping a convenient plug with his penknife and when it is quite ready for use, shooting the old one from his mouth as from a pop-gun, and clapping the new one in its place. I was surprised to observe that even steady old chewers of great experience are not always good marksmen, which has rather inclined me to doubt that general proficiency with the rifle of which we have heard so much in England. Several gentlemen called upon me, who, in the course of conversation, frequently missed the spittoon at five paces, and one, but he was certainly short-sighted, mistook the closed sash for the open window at three. On another occasion, when I dined out and was sitting with two ladies and some gentlemen round a fire before dinner, one of the company fell short of the fireplace six distinct times. I am disposed to think, however, that this was occasioned by his not aiming at that object, as there was a white marble hearth before the fender, which was more convenient, and may have suited his purpose better. The Patent Office at Washington furnishes an extraordinary example of American enterprise and ingenuity, for the immense number of models it contains are the accumulated inventions of only five years, the whole of the previous collection having been destroyed by fire. The elegant structure in which they are arranged is one of design rather than execution, for there is but one side erected out of four, though the works are stopped. The post-office is a very compact and very beautiful building, 
In one of the departments, among a collection of rare and curious articles, are deposited the presents which have been made from time to time to the American ambassadors at foreign courts by the various potentates to whom they were the accredited agents of the Republic, gifts which by the law they are not permitted to retain. I confess that I looked upon this as a very painful exhibition, and one by no means flattering to the national standard of honesty and honour. That can scarcely be a high state of moral feeling which imagines a gentleman of repute and station, likely to be corrupted in the discharge of his duty by the present of a snuff-box, or a richly mounted sword, or an eastern shawl, and surely the nation who reposes competence in her appointed servants is likely to be better served than she who makes them the subject of such very mean and paltry suspicions. At Georgetown, in the suburbs, there is a Jesuit college, delightfully situated, and, so far as I had an opportunity of seeing, well managed. Many persons who are not members of the Romish Church avail themselves, I believe, of these institutions, and of the advantageous opportunities they afford for the education of their children. The heights of this neighbourhood, above the Potomac River, are very picturesque, and are free, I should conceive, from some of the insalubrities of Washington. The air at that elevation was quite cool and refreshing, when in the city it was burning hot. The President's mansion is more like an English clubhouse, both within and without, than any other kind of establishment with which I can compare it. The ornamental ground about it has been laid out in garden walks. They are pretty and agreeable to the eye, though they have that uncomfortable air of having been made yesterday, which is far from favourable to the display of such beauties. My first visit to this house was on the morning after my arrival, when I was carried thither by an official gentleman who was so kind as to charge himself with my presentation to the President. We entered a large hall, and having twice or thrice rung a bell which nobody answered, walked without further ceremony through the rooms on the ground floor, as divers other gentlemen, mostly with their hats on and their hands in their pockets, were doing very leisurely. Some of these had ladies with them, to whom they were showing their premises. Others were lounging on the chairs and sofas. Others, in a perfect state of exhaustion from listlessness, were yawning drearily. The greater portion of this assemblage were rather asserting their supremacy than doing anything else, as they had no particular business there that anybody knew of. A few were closely eyeing the movables, as if to make quite sure that the President, who was far from popular, had not made away with any of the furniture or sold the fixtures for his private benefit. After glancing at these loungers, who were scattered over a pretty drawing-room, opening upon a terrace which commanded a beautiful prospect of the river and the adjacent country, and who were sauntering, too, about a larger state-room called the Eastern Drawing-Room, we went upstairs into another chamber, where were certain visitors waiting for audiences. At sight of my conductor, a black in plain clothes and yellow slippers, who was gliding noiselessly about and whispering messages in the ears of the most impatient, made a sign of recognition and glided off to announce him. We had previously looked into another chamber fitted all round with a great bare wooden desk or counter, whereon lay files of newspapers to which sundry gentlemen were referring, but there were no such means of beguiling the time in this apartment which was as uncompromising and tiresome as any waiting-room in one of our public establishments, or any physician's dining-room during his hours of consultation at home. There were some fifteen or twenty persons in the room, one a tall, wiry, muscular old man, from the waist sunburnt and swarthy, with a brown white hat on his knees, and a giant umbrella resting between his legs, 
who sat bolt upright in his chair, frowning steadily at the carpet, and twitching the hard lines about his mouth as if he had made up his mind to fix the president on what he had to say, and wouldn't bait him a grain. Another, a Kentucky farmer, six feet six in height, with his hat on, and his hands under his coat-tails, who leaned against the wall and kicked the floor with his heel, as though he had time's head under his shoe and were literally killing him. A third, an oval-faced, bilious-looking man, with sleek black hair cropped close, and whiskers and beard shaved down to blue dots who sucked the head of a thick stick, and from time to time took it out of his mouth to see how it was getting on. A fourth did nothing but whistle. A fifth did nothing but spit. And indeed all these gentlemen were so very persevering and energetic in this latter particular, and bestowed their favour so abundantly upon the carpet, that I take it for granted the presidential housemaids have high wages, or to speak more genteelly, an ample amount of compensation, which is the American word for slavery, in the case of all public servants. We had not waited in this room many minutes before the black messenger returned, and conducted us into another of smaller dimensions, where, at a business-like table covered with papers, sat the President himself. He looked somewhat worn and anxious, and well he might, being at war with everybody, but the expression of his face was mild and pleasant, and his manner was remarkably unaffected, gentlemanly, and agreeable. I thought that in his whole carriage and demeanour he became his station singularly well. Being advised that the sensible etiquette of the Republican court admitted of a traveller, like myself, declining, without any impropriety, an invitation to dinner, which did not reach me until I had concluded my arrangements for leaving Washington some days before to which it referred, I only returned to this house once. It was on the occasion of one of those general assemblies which are held on certain nights, between the hours of nine and twelve o'clock, and are called, rather oddly, levies. I went with my wife at about ten. There was a pretty dense crowd of carriages and people in the courtyard, and so far as I could make out there were no very clear regulations for the taking up or setting down of company. There were certainly no policemen to soothe startled horses, either by sawing at their bridles or flourishing truncheons in their eyes, and I am ready to make oath that no inoffensive persons were knocked violently on the head, or poked acutely in their backs or stomachs, or brought to a standstill by any such gentle means, and then taken into custody for not moving on. But there was no confusion or disorder. Our carriage reached the porch in its turn, without any blustering, swearing, shouting, backing, or other disturbance, and we dismounted with as much ease and comfort as though we had been escorted by the whole metropolitan force from A to Z inclusive. The suite of rooms on the ground floor were lighted up, and a military band was playing in the hall. In the smaller drawing-room, the centre of a circle of company, were the President and his daughter-in-law, who acted as the lady of the mansion, and a very interesting, graceful, and accomplished lady, too. One gentleman, who stood among his group, appeared to take upon himself the functions of a master of the ceremonies. I saw no other offices or attendants, and none were needed." The great drawing-room, which I have already mentioned, and the other chambers on the ground floor, were crowded to excess. The company was not, in our sense of the term, select, for it comprehended persons of very many grades and classes, nor were there any great display of costly attire. 
Indeed, some of the costumes may have been, for aught I know, grotesque enough, but the decorum and propriety of behaviour which prevailed were unbroken by any rude or disagreeable incident, and every man, even among the miscellaneous crowd in the hall, who were admitted without any orders or tickets to look on, appeared to feel that he was a part of the institution, and was responsible for its preserving a becoming character, and appearing to the best advantage." That these visitors, too, whatever their station, were not without some refinement of taste and appreciation of intellectual gifts and gratitude to those men who, by the peaceful exercise of great abilities, shed new charms and associations upon the homes of their countrymen, and elevate their character in other lands, was most earnestly testified by their reception of Washington Irving, my dear friend, who had recently been appointed minister at the Court of Spain and who was among them that night in his new character for the first and last time before going abroad. I sincerely believe that in all the madness of American politics few public men would have been so earnestly devoted and affectionately caressed as this most charming writer, and I have seldom respected a public assembly more than I did this eager throng when I saw them turning out with one mind from noisy orators and officers of state, and flocking with a generous and honest impulse round the man of quiet pursuits, proud in his promotion, as reflecting back upon their country, and grateful to him with their whole hearts for the store of graceful fancies he had poured out among them. Long may he dispense such treasures with unsparing hand, and long may they remember him as worthily." The term we had assigned for the duration of our stay in Washington was now at an end, and we were to begin to travel, for the railroad distances we had traversed yet, in journeying among these older towns, are on that great continent looked upon as nothing. I had first intended going south, to Charleston, but when I came to consider the length of time which this journey would occupy, and the premature heat of the season, which even at Washington had been often very trying, and weighed moreover in my own mind the pain of living in the constant contemplation of slavery, against the more than doubtful chances of my ever seeing it, in the time I had to spare, stripped of the disguises in which it would certainly be dressed, and so adding any item to the host of facts already heaped together on the subject, I began to listen to old whisperings which had often been present to me at home in England, when I had little thought of ever being here, and to dream again of cities growing up, like palaces in fairy-tales, among the wilds and forests of the West. The advice I received in most quarters, when I began to yield to my desire of travelling toward that point of the compass, was, according to custom, sufficiently cheerless. My companion being threatened with more perils, dangers, and discomforts than I can remember, or would catalogue if I could, but of which it will be sufficient to remark that blowings up in steamboats and breakings down in coaches were among the least. But having a western route sketched out for me by the best and kindest authority to which I could have resorted, and putting no great faith in these discouragements, I soon determined on my plan of action. This was to travel south, only to Richmond in Virginia, and then to turn and shape our course for the far west, whither I beseech the reader's company in a new chapter. End of chapter 8